0: TV, magazines, social media, no matter where you look, you're bound to see images of celebrities and models with seemingly picture-perfect bodies. We live in a society that advertising is typically body image-driven, and this causes many people to feel insecure about their own bodies, and this includes teens and children. There are many forms of eating disorders, and these disorders don't only affect adults. Attorney Gwendolyn J. Stirk speaks with Elizabeth House about the types of eating disorders, what can trigger the disorders, how parents can recognize eating disorders in their children, some treatment options, and how parents can help their children who may be in denial. The following is a legal advertisement from Sturk Family Law Group, PC. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Gwendolyn Sterk of Sturk Family Law, and I have the honor today to have with me Elizabeth House. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you today?
2: Hi, good. Thanks, Gwen. I'm doing Wait,
1: well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a clinical mental health counselor with
2: a private practice in Naperville, Illinois called Hopeful Changes. Um, I was previously a teacher for 14 years. I've also taught internationally. I've taught college. I kind of ended up stumbling upon therapy as a fun... retirement job, let's call it. Um, And I have um, lots of experience with like children and adolescents as well as adults. So those are some of the services that our private practice offers. Um, Right now I'm doing individual therapy at that location.
1: Well, very good. You know, one of the things that we want to address today is one of your areas of concentration, which is eating disorders in children. You know, when it's something you hear about for a while, and then it seems to go out, you know, years ago, you heard a lot about it. It still exists. It's still a major issue. So I really want to start today with a conversation about. Can you tell us what are the types of eating disorders in children?
2: Sure. So eating disorders are actually um, complex medical and psychiatric illnesses that clients don't choose and parents don't cause. I think a lot of parents struggle with that component of you know like it being something they've done or not done. Um, The American Psychiatric Association classifies five different types of eating disorders according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, which we call the DSM-5. Those are anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorders, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, and other specified feeding and eating disorders. Um, several decades of genetic research show that biological factors can play a significant role in who develops an eating disorder. Eating disorders are often clinically referred to as EDs. Um, EDs are also common, commonly co-occurring with other mental health conditions, such as major depression, anxiety, social phobia, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, when researchers examined things like death rates of individuals with eating disorders, who have the diagnosis being treated as outpatients, they found roughly like 1 in 20 people with eating disorders die as a result of the illness. Individuals who abuse laxatives or diuretics or force themselves to vomit are at significantly higher risk of sudden death from things like heart attack due to electrolyte imbalances. Excessive exercise also um, can increase this risk of death in individuals with eating disorders by increasing the amount of stress that it puts on the body, although wow. our um, current culture is kind of highly obsessed with food and weight, and distorted patterns of eating are very common. Clinical eating disorders are less so. Um, there was a two thousand study, two thousand seven study that asked nine thousand two hundred eighty-two English-speaking Americans um, about a variety of mental health conditions, and it roughly found that 09 percent of women and point of men had anorexia sometime in their life, whereas 1.5% of women and 0.5% of men had bulimia. But the highest rate was binge eating disorders, which is the most common. um, And that was 3.5% of women and 2% of the male population. So the consequences of eating disorders can be life-threatening and many individuals find stigma against the mental illness, especially with eating disorders. It's one of the more stigmatized um, categories and that can obstruct the timely diagnosis and adequate treatment.
1: Okay. You know, it sounds like there's just so much material out there. So you mentioned five, you've gone into some statistics. So, you know, you've got a parent out there who is saying to all of us, I don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's causing this. I don't know what the triggers are. You're saying it's biological, but it also is a component of mental health with it. So if a parent's listening today and they wanna say to you, okay, Elizabeth, tell me what's triggering this or what could be causing this at this point in time to come up in the situation? Sure, so there's no
2: simple answer to that question. Um, The causes of eating disorders are very complex. Current thinking, by eating disorder researchers and clinical experts hold that eating disorders are caused by both genetic and environmental factors. So they are considered biosocial culture diseases. Um, A societal factor, for example, like media-driven thin body ideals is an example of that. Um, An example of something that is more of like an environmental trigger can be linked to, um, an increased risk of developing an eating disorder as well. Um, so environmental factors also include physical illness, childhood teasing and bullying, and other life stressors,
1: such as a parent's divorce. Sure, Um, absolutely. It can be a trigger. And those are the things. So, you know, I think it's real interesting because I think some parents want it not to be a mental health issue, but then some people think it's a mental health issue and not a biological issue. But it's a real unique illness because it's a combination of both. So treating it must be, you know, somewhat difficult. But going on, you got a parent. So they say, OK, I understand now These could, this could have been what triggered the event. But I'm not sure that it is an eating disorder. How can parents start looking at recognizing, you know, an eating disorder or at least seeing signs to say, I need to get help for my child?
2: Sure. So that's, that's complicated too, of course, like many things that are mental health because many eating disorder sufferers go out of their way to hide the symptoms of their illness. There's, they're hiding it either out of shame or because they're afraid someone will make them stop. Um, it's not uncommon for loved ones to be caught off guard at how severe or pervasive the eating disorder behaviors are when a diagnosis is made or when people, close to the sufferer, become aware of that they're struggling in general. Um, If you are aware of a loved one struggling with it, it's important to express concern with empathy and compassion, and then encouraging that that individual seek help. There's tons of organizations from all around the world, including um, the Academy of Eating Disorders, the American Psychiatric Association, and NIDA, that have published guidelines that indicate the parents don't cause them. And I think that guilt factor is really where parents struggle the most, especially um, mothers. That was traditionally one of the areas that were blamed for children's eating disorders. But more recent research supports that eating disorders have a strong biological root and they develop differently for each person that's affected. And there's no set single um, set of rules that parents can follow to guarantee prevention.
1: You know, so I understand there's a sign out there or there may not be a sign because it's really easy to hide you have a parent that says, okay, there was a triggering event. I'm suspicious that there's an eating disorder. So what should they do next to start? I mean, a lot of people feel paralyzed every time a new issue arises. So where do you start?
2: Sure. So there's lots of places you can start. Um, I always am a firm believer in kind of wraparound approaches in general. Eating disorder treatment, There are many players that make that process go well. So there's, it depends on which eating disorder it is, but even within all of them, I would say definitely consulting an an MD, like the pediatrician, making them aware of concerns, making sure that that weight is being managed as well, um, because the medical care is necessary for things like dehydration, low blood glucose levels, anemia, low blood pressure, things like that that can really create long-term problems like osteoporosis and abdominal distress, um, but then also consulting definitely like a dietitian, you know, a mental health clinician, as well as a psychiatrist in some circumstances to make sure that if medication is needed, that that is medically managed as well as like that wraparound approach.
1: Right. As so far- it seems like it takes a village to treat this. You've got the medical, you've got the dietitian working, and then you've got the mental health provider. Is there interaction between all those experts to try to help a child move forward then?
2: Yeah, in the ideal world, um, that that definitely is the best approach, right? Because then everybody's kind of holding everybody else accountable. Um, if it's something more extreme, there's also, you know, different levels of care too. As far as like residential, they have 30 to 90 day programs. They have partial hospitalizations where you would go from like eight to six and have lots of classes throughout the week yeah. and throughout the day and um, everything from music therapy to individual and group. And then there's also intensive outpatient programs, and that can be like three to five days a week um, with less hours from like three to four hours a day in the evenings or in the afternoon as well.
1: Got it. You know, okay, so here I am, I'm a parent and I'm thinking, okay, I've identified a problem. I've spoken to the doctor about my concerns, but the doctor can't get any information out of my child because my child's also in denial. So, you know, everything's fine. It's all okay. There are no issues. What does a parent do then?
2: Sure, I think, I think support, right? So um, there's different organizations that parents can gain education from as well. Um, my personal favorite, and it's not that there aren't other great organizations, but the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associating Disorders is a nonprofit that offers all sorts of like wraparound supports as well. They offer free, there's a helpline, there's free support groups for people that struggle with eating disorders. They're virtual right now nationally. So they're pretty easy to get into at this time. Um, but they also have everything from treatment directories to peer mentors and that kind of helps parents have a place to start because that denial piece can be very very strong for both the patient and the parent.
1: Right I mean it's one way or another there seems to be a denial both sides but I I can understand that some parents really have a difficulty in getting their child to go. Now what if they say okay I don't want to go online to a national organization, I don't really want to talk to my doctor. I want to go to a new place. Could they go to a therapist and start there to try to get an acknowledgement of a problem and then get the inter- you know, the involvement of the other ex- experts to do that wraparound approach?
2: Absolutely. I think, I think having
1: um, a therapeutic alliance in any situation
2: is always better, right? So it depends on the severity. I would say that, you know, there's obviously this is a large scale. If somebody is to the point where they need um, feeding tubes, that that looks quite different than somebody who's purging once a week, right? So I'd hate to make a a blanket statement where yes, do that first. Um, I would, I personally would always reach out to a medical practitioner first um, just to make sure that the safety elements of it are taken care of if a child is more resistant and they start seeing an outpatient therapist like myself even weekly and have that um therapeutic alliance of hey let's really like talk about what thoughts are going into this right because of course they're related um people's elements of self-worth people's thoughts and beliefs that we create around the events of our lives that aren't necessarily true i I always tell people you can't believe everything you think Um, So yes, definitely. I think, I think it depends on the person and whatever makes that family successful to meet the child or adult's needs, depending on their situation is what is best for them.
1: You know, as a divorce practitioner, I think that you hit really on an important point that, you know, those environmental factors can trigger something that's biological. And I've seen that I've been practicing family law for 32 years. And if I look back and I say to myself, you know maybe that situation arose because of x or because of y and it was maybe there anyway and it was going to come out and blossom anyway i think sometimes people want to hide they want to pick up the carpet in the corner of the room put these crumbs underneath and think that the problems are going to go away and i think the message that you're really sending to everybody is you got to deal with it you got to confront it and you got to move forward and figure out a plan to go forward with your life
2: absolutely and and i think meeting any mental health need is that first step right so as long as, again, medically someone is safe, there's, there's a real important element of making sure that um, having the lowered symptomology is addressed too. Because if somebody's anxiety, for example, is on fire and you tell them to do something that creates more anxiety, that's gonna be difficult and crippling for
1: that person in general. So what if they have- listeners out there today, how they can get a hold of you to try to move forward and say, hey, I really would like to have a consultation with you. I'd like to learn some more. I heard the lecture today. I think we have a family situation we need to deal with. So give us your information. Sure. So um, I'm with Hopeful Changes. We're off of 1300 Iroquois
2: Avenue. Our suite number is 220A in Naperville. The zip code is 60563. My direct email is ehousehopefulchanges at gmail.com. And my direct line with the practice is 331-305-4055.
1: Sure. And just if they're looking for information and they want a place to get started, I would encourage them to give you a call because you can do this at an initial meeting and figure out a plan for the future. Am I correct in that?
2: Absolutely. So the first step with any um, mental health provider usually is what we call an intake. So it's kind of an interview to gather just all medical and mental health history and then to also gather information on presenting symptoms to create a diagnosis. Then once the diagnosis is created, a treatment plan based on what the clinician is seeing, as well as what the patient or the client identifies as their treatment goals. And that's kind of where it begins. And then you go from there.
1: Right. And then you can put those wraparound services in from there. Excellent. It's very good to talk to you. I know that this is an issue that's hard for people to talk to, but it's good to have some of these statistics. And I think that people are not alone out there. This is a situation that exists. And it's nice to see that you really have an area of concentration in this. So thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Happy to help. I'm happy to
2: help. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Sure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Resource Sessions by Stirk Family Law Group. To connect with Elizabeth House, email ehousehopefulchanges at gmail.com or call 331-305 4055. To learn more or to connect with Sturk Family Law Group or Gwendolyn J. Sturk, call 815-600-8950 or visit sturkfamilylaw.com. The information in this podcast is not legal advice and should not be construed as such. It is for informational and educational purposes only.